Rob Cross spent a decade researching his recent book, Collaboration Overload. One of his findings was how successful people are between 18 to 24% more efficient in their collaborative efforts, getting better results and improving their well-being compared to their peers. Hey folks, welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, Mr. Gomes? I am feeling predominantly hopeful, hopeful that we're going to be entering to a, a more positive phase in the, you know, around COVID. Um, who knows? Yeah. I'm also feeling really <laughs> hopeful that our guest today is going to give us, me, some very practical advice about how to uh, live my work more effectively. Um, having read his book, I've got lots of really probing questions for him. No, they're not probing, but interesting questions because I know he's going to give us some very practical things. I'm hopeful we'll all feel better as a result of our time together. How are you feeling, well, Scott? I've been on the I've been on the receiving end of your probing questions before, and they can be quite uncomfortable. <laughs> now I'm nervous. But uh, <laughs> not at all, not at all. Scott, how are you feeling? I'm feeling energized. I actually I started today feeling actually quite fatigued. It's been a, a bit of a trying week, not in a bad way, but just lots going on and just feeling fatigued. But uh, as soon as I logged on to this and and saw you join us and and uh, our guests get on, I've just gotten really energized because it's been a minute since we've recorded. Yeah. An episode. I know we like to have about six years worth of these in the can so that they can keep coming out long after we retire. But uh, anyway, here we go. So let me set the table. Uh, Today, we are joined by Mr. Rob Cross. Uh, For more than 20 years, Rob and his team have studied the underlying networks of over 300 organizations and the collaborative practices of high performers. He's the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and the co-founder and director of the Connected Commons, a consortium of over 100 leading organizations accelerating network research and practice. Rob has written widely for Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, and he's regularly featured in Business Week, Fortune, The Financial Times, Time Magazine, and The Wall Street Journal. And of course, we are also fans of his latest work, Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. Rob, thank you for joining us and welcome to The Evolving Leader. Thank you so much. It's a huge uh, privilege to be here. Rob, welcome to the show. How are you feeling? I'm actually feeling energized, too. That was the word I was going to use. I had a chance to get out and play tennis with a group I play with a a couple times a week, and so it's both kind of a a social outlet and an athletic outlet (laughs) uh, for me. And uh, you'll probably hear me come back to that at the end of our conversation for ideas on some of the uh, people listening today. (laughs) Excellent. Before we talk about Beyond Collaboration Overload, can we um, get some background about your work and approaches that led you to these ideas, particularly in network analysis? Yeah, absolutely. So I started in these ideas about 23 years ago. That number keeps growing as my hair keeps, you know, falling off. But uh, <laughs> the um, the idea for me at that point was everybody was using technologies to help move knowledge around organizations, right? And knowledge management was a big craze. And yet, when I would go out um, in my different research efforts and ask people how they solve problems, they never mentioned the technologies. They would always mention kind of reaching out to others and, and getting decisions and expertise and approvals and things like that. And so it really started me, you know, on this trajectory through a couple of different consortia now of looking at this idea of if we could see, you know, and, and take an x-ray or an MRI into organizations and see how collaborations and these interactions were happening, it would give leaders an entirely different way of thinking about how do I manage, right? And, and where are my inefficiencies happening? Where do I need to stimulate connectivity for innovation or engagement or things like that? 
Um, and so that has held for, you know, as you mentioned, over 300 organizations we've worked with, we've run these analytics in over a thousand cases in groups ranging from maybe a couple hundred to groups of 80, 90,000 for looking at large scale merger integrations or, uh, or things like that. But what I noticed in that and what really led me to the book um, that, that we're currently talking about is that you could see over these years a, a continual progression of the collaborative intensity of work, right? And it was a product of these restructurings where people were doing spans and layers or transitions to agile or other things like that that all sound great right, to create one firm, but they come with a collaborative cost that nobody was paying attention to. Or you look at the technologies, right, the, the instant messaging, the, the Slack channels, the other things that, again, all sound great <laughs> in terms of getting instantaneous connectivity to people. But again, it's another layer, set of layers of, of collaborative demands on people. And so as we looked at that, I could see that the collaborative intensity of work for most people, the time spent in collaborative work was about 85% of most people's weeks um, uh, in aggregate, right? And that that number had grown about 50% over a decade um, for most people, right? And so it got me very interested in saying, well, how do we uh, survive this, right? Because I could see some people were doing really well and some were really struggling. And this was pre-COVID, right? It's gotten worse through COVID. <laughs> um, but that was really the, the kind of launching point for really looking into this a little bit differently. And, and as I said, we, um, to you earlier on, before we started the podcast, I read the book when it came out and really enjoyed it. And a number of the team here also raving about it. And it, it's, it's set in two parts. Can you just talk us through, kind of give us, fly us through the, the two parts of it and what, what the payoff is in, in, in reading it? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So it, it, you know, people see the title a lot of times and they focus immediately on how do we kind of buy time back. And that really is only one half of the book. But the idea that I could see in the analytics is that we would, we would map and see who's interacting with whom, who's hitting the great highest performance metrics, things like that. And we could see that um, what I call the efficient collaborators, uh, the people that were kind of giving the greatest impact, taking the least amount of time, they were about 18 to 24% more efficient than their peers, right? And so I was immediately interested in that because that's a day a week almost, right? For people to, to be uh, that much more efficient. And so that's really the focal point of the first half of the book. It's on this infinity loop where in the first piece, we're talking about what are the things that those people do? that are enabling them to be that much more efficient, yet still high performers and still enabling others to be high performers uh, in organizations. And so it's around, you know, how people put structure in their work, how they challenge kind of these identity triggers that lead us to jump in when we shouldn't, uh, and then tactically kind of how they're managing the different collaborative applications and tools that enable them to, uh, to buy that time back. But then a really key piece for me was the second half of the book and saying, um, you know, what did we go do with that time, right? Because the, the problem in most time management approaches is you just seek time back, you get faster and faster, and it burns you out over time. In fact, mm -hmm. for most of us going through COVID, right, we, we started off pre-COVID complaining that we had eight one-hour meetings in a day and couldn't get anything done, right? And this was pre-COVID. And then somebody going through COVID had the great idea that we're going to just jam more short meetings in each day. So now we've got 16, 30-minute meetings <laughs> for most people, and we're exhausted right? Because you're more intense in those meetings, you're switching across them more rapidly, and you end the day with a to-do list based on 16 meetings, not eight, 
right? And so what I was really focused on is we can't fall into that trap of kind of buying time back and then people doing the same mm-hmm. thing more rapidly. And so the second half of the book is really fundamentally a very different way of looking at how these people view collaboration that enables them to scale and innovate differently. And uh, if they're doing it well, enables them to just get higher levels of happiness um, in kind of how they're living their life. Uh, so that's the architecture uh, of it in kind of the two halves. So you said something in the first uh, about the first half of the book where you said identity triggers. What do you mean by identity triggers? So this is the thing that really surprised me. Like I came into this work completely convinced that collaborative uh, overload was external, right? It was emails, time zones, nasty bosses demanding clients, right? That was it. If we could solve that, we'd have it figured out. And as I went through all these interviews, right, we used the the quantitative analytics to see these special people that were crushing it. And then I would do all these interviews and it it slowly hit me that at least 50% of the problem is us and that we all have these triggers or these tendencies to jump into things when we're best served not to, or other people sometimes are best served not to, but it's just kind of how we view being a good colleague or a good leader. Right. And it's very deep in us. And for some people, it's a desire to help. Right. And, and you, you kind of view being a good colleague or a good leader, this servant based mindset. And that's a great thing. Right. Nobody argues mm-hmm. with that. But if you do it in a certain way today and you try to help directly versus building capability, we're so interconnected that, that you become the path of least resistance and you get overrun. Right. At some point. Mm-hmm. For me, another one is uh, the need for accomplishment. Right. That's mine. Right. And I, if I find a five minute window, of space in my life, I will try to jam 60 minutes of stuff in it. And I'll completely ignore the two to three hours of coordination I have to do around that with my team to get everybody aligned. And, you know, four, six weeks in, I'll be grumbling, right, about why isn't this, you know, going well, why isn't it working out? And, you know, forget completely that I started it to begin with. (laughs) It was my issue for kind of jumping in 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 that moment. And so that's, that's what I mean. We found that there's nine of these triggers that are just these kind of deep tendencies, you know, whether it's fear of missing out, need for status, uh, desire to help, need for accomplishment, fear of what colleagues think, you know, if you say no. And they lead us on the margin to jump into situations that uh, kind of lead to collaborative overload, right, at, at some point. And in, in many ways, that's kind of the insidious thing about overload is that it feels good right up until it doesn't, right, because we're actually getting a need met. People are reacting to us. We're energized right up until, you know, something goes wrong <laughs> and, you you know, you lose an employee or one too many projects or significant others says no. And it, it kind of starts a, a negative, negative downward spiral. I love what you're saying because it, it just really rings true for me. So my follow up question is, how can one start to identify their particular identity trigger that, that gets them stuck in, in patterns of behaviors and responsiveness that is counterproductive for them? I got one good one for you. That's ask your significant other. <laughs> you don't buy yourself. <laughs> Somebody else that'll tell you. I mean, they're pretty good at, <laughs> at pulling that apart. So, I, you know, my wife knew immediately with me, oh, you're the need for accomplishment guy. I thought it was the fear of, you know, missing out guy. <laughs> and, uh, and so we made a deal that, that I, don't, I don't take anything on until I talk to her first. And just the fear of that conversation <laughs> has me uh, much more thoughtful in those little five minutes I would, I would jump into. But I think, you know, in all honesty, there is reflective portions to think about, right? Am I getting into trouble because of this, right? And, and well, and that's the crazy thing about most of these triggers. They're all good up mm-hmm. to a point. You know what I mean? They're all positive things. Um, but you've got to do it in a certain way today um, to, to keep yourself from getting you know, hit with the, the, the collaborative overload problem. 
What struck me about those triggers was that they they all felt like emotional. They're all the source of them was a need to emotionally feel valued in a particular situation, and and I think your observation there about your the people closest to you, the ones that are going to be most honest about where that shows up, because there's 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 lots of good stuff in that, but there's also a slightly you know shadow part to that as well, which is you might be responding for the wrong reasons to to want to feel valued in a situation, but. You know, the, one of the things that you do brilliantly in this book is articulate the subjective experience of this through the, um, the Scott, not our Scott here on this call, but your your archetype for the, the problem. Let's call him John. Experience. <laughs> they might merge, Scott. I don't know. We'll see. You're going to think about this, but you know, it's this well-intentioned leader who's become the limiting factor. Um, can Can you just give us like a little bit of a snapshot of what the day in the life of Scott might be? Because I'd like to stay with the problem just a little bit longer so that, that our listeners yeah. can kind of bring this to life for themselves. Yeah, so I would, when, when I met him, and obviously it's a disguised name yeah. in the in the case, but um, he was somebody that had had a tremendous track record, you know, rising in the organization. And, um, you know, everybody loved him. When I was in this organization, you know, he was talked about in glowing terms as if, you know, where he was at this point, he would be the next CEO or one of the leading contenders for, for that spot. And so I was floored when the CEO actually pulled me aside at one point and said, we want you to look at the analytics because we're about to, you know, let go of Scott because everything was positive, right? He, he, he came into this role and he had a, a very heavy servant-based mindset to leadership. Like he viewed leadership as helping very deeply, took layers out of the hierarchy, you know, all these very positive things from a contemporary leadership standpoint. And yet, you know, when you mentioned a day in the life, when I met him, I was getting emails at 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., uh, physically, you know, when I first sat down to talk with him about this, you know, you could see he was wrung out, right? Just a little bit manic, a little bit wrung out. Nicest guy you'd ever meet. You know, most people see these analytics and they see somebody that's fallen into that degree of overload and the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, they need to delegate, right? They're controlling too much. And it it's probably only 10% of the problem, mm. right? Is, is that kind of person. It, it, people get into it in all sorts of ways. And so for Scott, it was the belief that leadership is about helping. And what would happen a lot of times with him, just to give you one small example. So you, you get the idea, right? right. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Problems in marriage, you know, that had accrued slowly over time because of the stress. Uh, team members were burning out and leaving because they couldn't get access to him and he didn't even know it, right? Because he was in such a frenzy in his, his bubble. So, so you get the idea, right? Of his day-to-day existence. But what, what would happen to him was really subtle, you know? And so he would, you know, see an email thread, for example, where there may be 10 people copied on this thing that they were going to go do. And person A says, we should go do this. And person B says, how about that? And, and Scott would kind of watch it unfold. And eventually he would come in and say, what about X, right? And so it wasn't directive. It wasn't even saying, go do this or go think about this. And, and you know, when we talked about it, he was saying, all I'm really trying to do is show him I'm there, right? Let the team know that I'm there. Um, but what would happen then is suddenly the team was managing the issue and they started having to manage Scott. And so he would get more emails, he would have more meetings put on his calendar. And this is, you know, not just one of these things that's going on, but probably 20 of them, right, that, that was kind of creeping around him. And and it would always occur, you know, so, and he couldn't put the, the time, uh, he couldn't connect the two points, right, because he would make that comment, and it would just be a fleeting thought. And then he'd be overloaded or experiencing the results of that overload six weeks later. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you kind of started to, to look at it and think about, okay, 
um, you know, it, it, it's this tendency to jump in that's that's doing it. So, so that was kind of you know pre uh, some of the changes that he made, and, and I can go into the you know the post as well if you want me to talk a little bit about what he did. But you you kind of guide me. Yeah, well, maybe you can come back to to him. But you know, th- that's one kind of origin story for this problem. What about the as organizations have moved from this command and control structure to to more of the um, the kind of agile um, and delayed system. You've still got kind of command and control fanatics there that are working in that new system. How are they struggling with with collaboration overload? You know, discomfort with ambiguity, trying to control too much. A lot of times it's just this notion of if I can get this clear in my head, then we can move ahead, you know. And so you see those people, what we're constantly urging, you know, them to think about is how do you make a decision in 20 minutes versus two hours and and just learn in the moment, right? Try to shift the mindset of let's kind of move this incrementally forward, learn as we go. And the problem with the, the too tight a control today, number one, is we're too inner connected, right? For all these things to keep coming back to one point, it, it just overwhelms you. It, it drives your innovative capacity down. It burns people out, all the, all the negative things, right? That you can, you can think of. Um, and so finding ways to kind of shift that, you know, is, is, uh, is really critical for those individuals. And part of it is um, a lot of times the, these triggers or these beliefs that people fall into, like we're talking about, but part of it is just also really bad role design today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that's happened, my book was written around the individual right now. And what are the people doing that are surviving and actually thriving in this world? But an equally important problem is that leaders have no understanding of the collaborative footprint of the work they're asking their people to do anymore. Mm. And it's gotten so intense um, because of all these things we're talking about, the technologies, agile ways of working, one from cultures, de-layerings, I mean, you go down the list, that um, it's, it's a real problem. You know, task A and task B can look the same when a leader allocates it out to somebody. But if task A is coordinating with six people in the same geography and same unit, that's a totally different animal than task B if they're coordinating across two time zones you know, two groups that have misaligned incentives and two leaders that don't like each other. <laughs> you know, there's two weeks of effort difference in that alone. And it's completely invisible uh, right now that, that you know, we've got to get a better handle on that piece of it, too, in terms of the org design, the, the work allocation, other things like that, that we're, we're doing to people. So when you go into a, a C-suite, how do you help them to better understand this strategically? I love, you know, the, the different kinds of tools that we've developed in the Connected Commons as a way of being able to map and assess how collaboration is actually happening. So there's different ways we can do it. We can come in and, and rely on what people call passive analytics. So that may be email uh, data, not that we're opening emails, right, or looking at it in any way that affects privacy, but we're just looking at where the roles that are getting overwhelmed, where are you not, you know, bringing people into the organization the way you think, right? Especially as we move into 2022 and the resignations predicted, that's a really big deal. And too often people don't understand how people integrate well into these networks, right? What really slingshots them in, um, and so we may be using kind of passive analytics or I prefer kind of survey based approaches that we use that allows you to kind of see how the group is working and identify opportunities where overload is happening. that's been invisible, where you're not getting utilization of capabilities that you should or talent that you should, where specific silos exist that are the ones you want to pay attention to. Right. Because we don't want to go in and say everybody should be connected to everybody else. That's what's killing us <laughs> right, right now. 
but you can use the analytics to say, okay, legitimately where there are a handful of breakdowns may be hurting us because of scale and efficiencies or because we're not innovating well, if we could bring groups together. And those are worthwhile, you know, investments. So, so that's an approach, you know, that we, we tend to take, but really rooting it in the analytics huh, at, at that level a lot of times. I'm, I'm interested in, in different types of collaboration because I think when you're, you're trying to do something that is pretty known and you can do the plan and act type of approach that we know what we're doing more or less and you know, collaboration then becomes, I don't know, a bit more concrete for people in terms of what we're bringing to the party versus the, the more kind of um, emergent stuff where it's uncertain and we need to test and learn. And collaboration then becomes about managing risk and uncertainty within the organization. Have you got kind of anything to observe around the different types of collaboration? Yeah, and I'll, I'll take it a certain path and you kind of direct me back. Um, we definitely see this, like as we moved into a more virtual or hybrid context, you know, however this all evolves. When you think you know what you need to know, we're pretty good at getting it right through the through the virtual connections we can work our way towards it now the question is do you really know what you mean <laughs> are you really right you know what mm -hmm. i mean and a lot of times you know we can either have wider or more narrow apertures in that and, and be more or less you know right in there um but what we find to your point is the it's the more complex um kinds of problem solving or the, the you know the events that require more serendipitous kind of exchange of aha moments or things like that that's what tends to fall down in virtual contexts if you're not doing things that stimulate it um and so you know by that to give you one example like everybody talks about right now and we can see it in the actual analytics that it's the bridging ties that are decaying mm. in organizations so that within unit the within team ties they've actually strengthened because a lot of the leaders are just hunkering down trying to take care of my team and you see more connectivity there it's the cross group ties that have fallen off and from my standpoint as a network person that's really problematic right so we may see productivity going up a little bit as we go through COVID, but we're going to see a big hit on innovation in kind of, you know, 18 months, two years, three years, because that's where it tends to come from, right? Where you're integrating different perspectives and, and taking to a client something, uh, something you know, unique there. Um, but what I do find too, is that, you know, that people always are constantly coming back to me saying, we've lost these water cooler moments. Like, and I don't think anybody actually has a water cooler, right? <laughs> it's just these <laughs> things that they're saying they, they, they know happened and they're not doing anything about. And I, could point to a hundred people in all these interviews I did that just did really interesting things to stimulate serendipity. So I'll give you, you know, one example was a very rough investment banker, one of the top blue chip investment banks. And he was, you know, Italian accent. He was telling me when everything went virtual, he said, I, I panicked, I lost my mind. I couldn't see my people. And it was driving me crazy, you know, over a couple of months. Um, it was, he had ran a group about 40, something like that. Um, and he said at, at one point, his wife convinced him to do this thing called the Friday Rose with the group. So the Friday Rose is he at the end of one day on Friday, he sent an email out to people. And the stem was, here's what I learned this week. Here's how I grew, basically. The flower was, here's one cool thing, right, that I that I'm, you know, want everybody to know. And the thorn was, here's, you know, one thing I messed up or wish I'd known or done differently, whatever it may be. 
And to hear him tell the story, it was a riot because he said he hit the send button and he could feel people laughing at him. (laughs) What is he lost his mind and everything else? And he would say, no, 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 no. You've got to do this thing too. And, and it got, you know, to the point within a couple of weeks where it was just an hour of time and everybody was slingshot off of that email at the end of the week. But what he told me is he said, we have had more serendipitous discoveries because of just creating that transparency, you know, of what people are working on than we ever had when we were face to face in that presumed water cooler moment. And he said that thorn thing of kind of admitting, here's one thing that didn't go well, he felt was breeding a level of authenticity in the group that had never been there and hearing about things a little bit earlier. So, you know, I think when we talk about, you know, to your point, I think this is really critical as we move forward about being really precise on what are we looking for in the collaboration? And how do we stimulate that? Not how do we just throw more Zoom calls to people or lead them to the tools, but really understanding kind of what we're trying to get in the interaction and what's the quality we're trying to build in the relationship, right? So for him, he built trust through that, that thorn idea. And I think that's going to be really critical, you know, as we, as we progress. Yeah. And, and you in the, in the book talk about how you, the, and the need for energizing your networks. And that's, this seems like a good example of what you're talking about there. Yeah, yeah, well, um, it's huge. You know that um, that that across twenty three years of doing this, that it's not having, it's never having a big network that predicts a high performer. That tends to read lead to a couple of um, ways that people derail. Um, it's a it's a broad network, early stage problem solving. So it kind of you know goes back to your point as well. That these people tend to innovate very early in seeing a solution and reach into the network very early. And then it's being, you know, as you said, an energizer and being somebody that actually creates a context where others are energized by what you're up to. And that creates flow, like things magically come to those people, better projects, better opportunities, all sorts of uh, things. So, you know, as I was saying in the beginning, it's a very different way of networking and and how these people are investing their time that that tends to have payoffs like that. So you give um, you know quite a bit of practical advice for the uh, individual, and you've touched on on some of that now um, in terms of you know reducing collaboration overload. But I'd be interested in hearing you know a few more of your ideas about how we can you know reduce some of these you know email overloads rec- and other recurring micro stressors that have impact on us. Yeah, great, great question. So for me, I'll, I'll just kind of grab you know each of the three pieces in the first. Uh, part of the book, right? The, the the left part of the infinity loop around how do you get 18 to 24% of your time back? And we've, we've talked about one, right? How do you identify this trigger or triggers, right? If there's a couple of things that, that lead you to get yourself in trouble. Uh, a second really critical thing that, that more effective people do is they're just better at putting structure into their work uh, on the margin, right? And, and they do this in a whole bunch of different ways. But when I would find people that had ended their careers in just miserable positions or had been promoted to, say, a manager-manager layer and were getting overwhelmed, um, very, very often it was because they had um, fallen into a reactive posture of, you know, thinking they needed to respond to every email, be in every meeting and persist in a way that that just wasn't tenable. They became somebody else's idea of fun, right, (laughs) And, and, and the reactions and in contrast, when I looked at the efficient collaborators, those people that, you know, again, were about a day a week more efficient, they would 
put structure into their work on the margin. So it's never one big solution that solves this problem for everybody. I always equate it to more of a brawl than a ballet. Right? These people are kind of fighting for time uh, in very specific ways, but they would be more likely, for example, to strategically calendar on Friday night or Sunday night with a one-week interval in mind, but usually a longer-term interval, kind of two to three months, where they're thinking about how do I start structuring in these interactions that are going to pull me in a direction that I want to be, right? Then allow me to kind of produce value at a different level, different capability, uh, more likely to manage role interdependencies, right? Ahead of demands flowing to them and actually sculpt the nature of the work coming into their teams so that their teams are more energized and giving greater effort. Um, really simple one for everybody to do. If you don't do it, it's block reflective time um, in your calendar. We know that, that kind of somewhere between 90 minutes and two hours is a really optimal uh, amount, depending on which study you're, you're looking at right now. And, you know, in some cases where people have op open calendars, they may hide that right behind meetings. It's, it's always funny to me when I ask how many people do this and I say, how many people hide it? And these hands slowly, <laughs> you know, go up. Um, but the reason that matters is because we experience collaborative overload as a volume problem, right? It's, it's just being overwhelmed by the emails, phone calls, IMs, you know, et cetera, Slack notices that are coming at us. But it's also a, a, a diversity or a switching cost problem, right? And so we know the cognitive psychologists show that just looking down at the text and back up can be a 64 second loss, right? Because to take ourselves that amount of time to get back on track, if the interruption is so much that we've lost our train of thought, then um, that can be up to 20, 23 minutes to kind of be completely back on track. And so, you know, I ask people a lot of times to just sit down and say, how many of the small ones have you taken today already? And have you had one or two of the big ones because you went across three slack things quickly and lost kind of where you were? Um, and that adds up, right? There's no, no wonder we're working deeper into the night or earlier into the, the morning because of that. And so that's what the, the blocking does, right? Mm -hmm. Is it, it kind of takes that, the switching cost down. Um, and people do it in all sorts of different ways. Some people, it's the reflective time they block. Other people would tell me, well, gosh, you know, I block the email time, right? And so for me, I came in and said, look, I'm only going to do email in, in three 30 minute spurts through a day, communicate it to others. Um, and that's kind of their, their effort, right? Their way of taking that switching cost and the interruption cost, uh, cost down. And I can, I can also touch on the email one, but let me pause there too for a second. And see. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about email because everybody's, um, feels a little bit victimized by it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so for me, when I, when I look at this, um, it's, I, I, you know, the, the normal person, you know, me included, as I started this, would tend to look at email and say, well, I can't control it, so I'm not even going to try, you know, and, and it's coming from all walks of life. What I would find and learn from my efficient collaborators is they would tend to, and again, this is this idea of a brawl, not a ballet, they would kind of come into it and say, okay, it's not one elegant solution, but it turns out that my team generates 40% of the email that I have to process, and we actually can set some norms that, that may affect, you know, my time and their time. Right, especially the newcomers' times that are, that are trying to figure it out. And so, and that's what I generally find. It's not so much the technologies that are killing us, it's the norms of use that we allow to develop and, and overrun us. And so, super easy activity for people to do is grab a blank piece of paper or, you know, something virtually, but, you know, three, two lines in it, right? Three columns you're looking for. And in the first column, list out here's all the ways that we collaborate. And it's usually more surprising to people. You know, usually it's six or seven ways. You know, it's email, Slack, uh, IM, you know, some team collaborative space, 
video, phone, some gratitude application. You know, it adds up a lot more than you, mm. you think. Uh, and then in the first column, this develops kind of say, here's three ways we want to use this tool, three norms of use, right? So if it's email, for example, we're going to we're gonna start writing bullets. We're going to state what we want in the subject line. Uh, and if we have to write more than two or three emails, we're going to get off and go to a richer channel, right? So that we're not kind of wasting a ton of people's time and not trying to hide what we want in the ninth paragraph of a 15-paragraph email. Um, and, and then the last column, so second column is here's, you know, positive norms, right, across not just email, but also IM, other things. And the last column is what do we want to stop, right? And so if it's, if it's email, again, maybe uh, what I would frequently hear is people saying, look, we need to stop sending emails late at night, right? So maybe you just say, we're gonna, we're not, if you have to write the email at 10 o'clock at night, don't send it. Send it on a delay so that you're not starting the 10.02 response, the 10.05, the 10.07, and that kind of culture being awesome. Really simple activity, right? You know, you as a leader can sit down and, and rough it out, and then you spend an hour with your team and say, well, what do you all think? You know, where do we want to fine-tune this? And usually people are laughing at themselves through it, but it just sets a, a set of norms very quickly that are just common sense. But people report getting, you know, 5, 8, 10% of their time back because they're not, you know, kind of sucked into this uh, in, in different ways. Um, so that's one example. And there's all sorts of tactics in the chapters around, you know, ways to, to look at and think about email a little bit differently. Does, does all of this kind of, is it all predicated on getting a handle on your identity trigger first? Because as you talk through this sort of pragmatism, I'm thinking, you know, but if I'm a person whose identity is all tied up in being uber responsive to every email, right? It comes in in 90 seconds, you know, I fire back. And now I'm trying to set this new boundary. That That's going to rub against the sort of identity that I've carved out for myself in the organization. It might take a a bit of real effort to to try to kind of create a new expectation around me, right? I couldn't agree more. And that's actually the architecture of those chapters is we lead with that. And then we go to the structure piece. Like how are you putting structure into your work differently to shield you from so much mm -hmm. of this? And then we're into the tactics on like the email thing I'm mentioning or meetings or other things. And the, the problem is people are quick to grab the tactics, but they don't work unless you're doing those first two things right too. You know what I mean? You just kind of drift back into um, kind of in, ineffective tendencies. Yeah. We also have built um, and made available to everybody. It's on my website, but these diagnostics that let people assess kind of how do I think I'm doing, but then they can invite their team in to take it as well. And that tends to be a pretty powerful way to say, okay, you know, if I'm the need for help guy or the uber responsive guy, um, then you all need to watch me on this too. You know what I mean? And it just kind of uh, pushes the conversation down a layer, which I think is really important today. I can't make a decision in isolation to do these things without mm -hmm. kind of helping others know here's what I'm doing and why, um, or I'll just get overrun, right, in, in different ways. So what are you seeing or what have you learned about how high performers are now spending their time, you know, especially those that get back this sort of, I think you said 18 to 24% of their time by incorporating these sort of tactics yeah. Yeah. Great question. Because the idea for me with the book is you don't just want to buy time back and do the same things faster. Right. So I was very focused on in the second half of the book saying, well, what's unique about how these people are uh, interacting? And what we could see is it's never a big network that predicts high performers. It's, it's one that's rich with these bridging ties to other units, other geographies, other capabilities, other organizations. 
And so, you know, we call that structural diversity. And we can see on all our work analytically is the people that maintain those more structurally diverse networks. It's the second biggest predictor of a high performer, right? And so what that got me really interested in the interviews is, uh, what does that mean for busy people? Do I just come into a podcast like this and say, just go meet a lot of people that are different, right? Or, you know, what's the balance of that and doing your work and all this other stuff? And so I would ask people um, in these interviews, tell me about your career defining accomplishment, right? Maybe one or two or something that you really crushed it on and um, kind of put you on an upward trajectory in your work. And then I would say, I don't care about what you did. I don't want to hear a thing about what you did. I want to understand what was the role of your network in helping you see the possibility and helping you scale uh, this, you know, relying on others to cover skill gaps, you know, things like that, that, that made this, uh, this thing happen. And really explore this idea of not networks in isolation, but networks in the context of your career-defining accomplishments, right? The, the idea of work and network going uh, together. And what I learned through all of that is that <clears throat> the more successful people, they tend to manage connections across kind of time horizons. So they have this long-term time horizon where um, they're exploring a lot more. They tend to spend about 20 to 25% more time than the average person reaching out to others and just exploring possibilities, right? And mm -hmm. saying, how could we work together? How could we integrate what we know and de deliver a different solution, right? So it's not a form of networking where people are, you know, racing to these people and saying, I need your help, <laughs> right? And, it, and it's also not a form of networking, trying to figure out politically where the power structure is and how do I tap into this invisible power structure? It's just starting to establish you know, what could be done with other people that would allow me to produce a better outcome than I can myself and to build those relationships, right, early. And then why that matters, so that was kind of the long term, right, the progressive kind of incremental building of those connections is when the opportunities came, um, they, those, the, you know, people have two responses, right? Let's say it's either an ask by the boss or you see a possibility by somebody that pops up on LinkedIn, whatever it may be. There's two broadly speaking categories of people in the world, right? One hunkers down and says, oh crud, I've got another assignment. And they just try to get it done themselves with the same two people they talked to the last 10 times. And then there's another category that's done just enough of this exploration that they literally see the possibility differently, right? They literally are saying, gosh, we could do this with this. And they reach into the network um, and because they bought just enough time back, right? 18 to 24%. Um, and they win at the end of the day because they're producing a better outcome and they're doing it in a way that involves others. And those others at some point start bringing them opportunities, right? And so to me, that was unbelievably cool to see that because it's not, you know, a, a form of networking that's nefarious, that's just social, uh, not just focused on size. It's that they're kind of creating a platform and then in those small moments, they, uh, they work off of it. Uh, and then as work develops, they build connections around that work in really predictable ways too that enable them to get scale. So there's one simple example. They're <clears throat> much more likely to reach out to very influential people early in the project and, and, and get them engaged, even negative influencers, which really surprised mm -hmm. me they would get their engagement far, far earlier than the conventional approach of let's perfect the idea, then take it out, right? And try to beat people over the head with logic or mandate. And they would, you know, their ideas would be up, take, taken up in a sixth of the time, <laughs> you know, because suddenly they had the input and they had the acceptance of these people. And so again, that's a scale issue, right? It's that they're investing their time in certain ways that then saves them six months of work. 
trying to win by you know logic or mandate downstream. So that's a couple couple of the ideas that we could see from a, a performance standpoint. Hi, producer Phil here. If you're one of the many listeners who's come into the Evolving Leader fold in the last year, then welcome. It's great to have you on board. Since we launched the podcast, we've released episodes with so many amazing guests. One such episode being our conversation with perceptual neuroscientist Dr. Bo Lotto, who, during the episode, opened our eyes and minds to the fact that we evolved to see what is useful, not accurate, that we never see reality as it is. If you've not heard this episode, then add it to your Evolving Leader playlist, because it will blow your mind. I'll add a link in the show notes. And I was struck by this um, this notion of micro stresses and and perhaps we, you know things that we might disregard because in isolation, but the cumulative effect of those is very significant. Um, yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that and some examples? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Because this is the one that hooked me. It's actually the source of my next book that I'm I'm working on. And I, it, as with a lot of this stuff, I stumbled into it. But I'll kind of um, we we started this work on well being. Uh, that's kind of referenced in chapter eight. We're going to take a lot more of it forward because every every model of what creates a happy person in the world, right? Or, or you know, if you look at studies of longevity, they all have relationships in it, right? At one level or another, it's authentic relationships. Um, but then none of them really went much further than that. If, if, you, if you don't have them, you've gotten unlucky and you've gotten busy in life and let things lapse, you know, it's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> There's no real kind of advice on, you know, what are you getting from these people? What, uh, what do you do to keep those relationships? How do you reinitiate re- them, right? If you've gotten busy mid-30s. Uh, and so we initially were focused on this well-being work to say, predictably, what are the drivers of well-being that are influenced by relationships right around us. And we came down to four notions. It's, it's physical health. We know that when people make decisions to get healthy and put that activity into groups of other people, they do better. They persist longer. There's a lot of other benefits that come from it. Uh, how we experience growth in and out of work is heavily conditioned by the connections we have and the opportunities that come with us. How we experience purpose in our lives is as conditioned by the way we're interacting as the actual work itself, and then how we get resilience. And so resilience is an example of, you know, people think about that, and a lot of times they're talking it up to inner fortitude or grit or things like that. And there's an element of that, to be sure, but but going through all these interviews, um, I could see that, that, you know, I would ask people, tell me about difficult stretches in your life, and, and how did you turn to others that, that helped? And people turn to others in pretty predictable ways, you know, for perspective, uh, to see a path forward, empathy, to laugh at the absurdity of a situation. And, you know, those people that have those connections and know how to leverage, kind of know what their needs are, they make it through difficult times far more effectively, right, than, than people in, uh, in isolation. So, you know, I say that as set up because it was doing 300 interviews on this specific piece. And um, my very first interview, I'll never forget for, for as long as I live, is with a very successful life science executive in London and lovely British accent. And she was telling me, uh, I asked her, I said, can you tell me about a time when you were just becoming more physically healthy, right? And the role of connections in that. And, and she said, Rob, I was the person in high school that, that dodged gym or PE or whatever she called it, right? I, everything I could do, I wanted out of physical activity until I hit my mid-30s. And my doctor gave me a stern warning, you know, at the at the heart of it. And she said, so I started walking around this park in London that was outside my flat. 
And, you know, over time, she started seeing the same people walking at the same time. And she fell into a little discussion group with them. And they started showing up at the same time. And it went from walks to a charity walk to these short charity runs to you flash forward um, 10 years later when I was talking to her. And she was uh, she and her husband would plan vacations where they would do a marathon first together and then, you know, go on the vacation. And what she would say is that, you know, the identity of being a runner. Right. Certainly helped me push back on work. But she said the real key was the authenticity of the relationships in that group. Right. They saw me at my worst. I saw them at their worst. They were coming at life from a totally different um, set of perspectives. Right. It was a male person, an IT person. It was just very different than just the life science executives that you're talking to and thinking about your world. Um, and so that became one of the really critical pieces of understanding well-being today is people need that kind of dimension they need at least two and usually three groups that they're kind of engaged with. It doesn't have to be running. <clears throat> can take all sorts of um, walks of life, but um, it needs to, to be there. But to, to, you know, John, come back to your micro stress question, so long <laughs> wind up to it. Um, what really struck me is about 45 minutes into this interview, it's like super high energy. You know, we're like, I'm thinking, gosh, if I get 299 more of these, it's great. And, um, and then I just stopped and said, well, what got you in trouble to begin with? And it went from this really high energy conversation down to like nothing for you know, just dead silence for a second. And and after about 30 seconds, she said, just life, I guess, right? Or just, you know, kind of really trying to put her finger on, you know, what, what had happened. And so we dug into that for the next 45 minutes. And it led me to this idea of micro stress <clears throat> and starting to see how we experience stress today is very different than, than conventional thinking about it, where you have one stressful you know, interaction or one stressful job uh, that you can put your finger on, you can point to and say, that's the problem. Stress today now is coming at us through all these relational touch points in our work or at home. And it's all small moments. They all feel like things you just get through. But the the number of them is so tremendous today Mm. that we all go home exhausted and can't quite put our finger on, you know, what just happened. And so it's more than just bad news on media, (laughs) the negative slant there. It's the fact that they're coming through relationships, right? And you get hit with one of these things, but from somebody you don't like, and it magnifies the emotional reaction. Or worse yet, you get hit and see somebody's in trouble that you love, right? And it magnifies the emotion that you're experiencing. Um, And so that's, that's a huge piece of work, you know, in this, this last chapter of the book, but also the next book is to really think about how do we start seeing that and, and dealing with that better as, as humans today? Because it's not going to go away, right? It's going to be a, a component of, of how we live and work going forward. And in all of this um, and those interviews that you're doing with people, it strikes me that the, um, the point you made earlier on about understanding your needs requires a, a certain type of self-awareness because as we become busier, we... We're always on the risk of being cut off from how we're really feeling because we're, you know, almost like defined by all that stimulus and all those inputs. And when it cuts off, you know, we go home or whatever, we're left kind of feeling a bit shell-shocked by that. Um, what have you learned about the, the, the high performers in terms of their ability to tune into those needs? Because it sounds like this woman, for example, was able to do that quite quickly, whereas some people might struggle with it. 
So to me, I think a lot of it goes back to this idea that I was just alluding to. Is, is I, I kind of joke when I'm doing talks on this, and I'll end by saying, wear sunscreen, right? I, I can't tell you anything else I know for sure, but wear sunscreen from that old commencement address. And to me, the equivalent of that is, is have at least two and usually three groups outside of work that, you know, become a piece of your identity. So it's not just running on a treadmill by yourself, right? That can, it can work for people. I don't want to take that away, but it's, it's, you know, it's having that activity in other groups of people that give you different perspectives, different ways of thinking about your life, solving problems. My, one of my more recent interviews was the head of neurosurgery at one of the leading hospitals in the country. And he was describing to me based on some discussions we'd had, you know, about a year ago that he started, he, he reached back to a passion in high school. So a lot of people do it this way. They find themselves becoming too unidimensional. They'll reach back to a passion from the past and use that to slingshot into a new group, right? And, and start to kind of form those connections. So for him, he used to play in a rock band <laughs> in high school. So he started, you know, guitar again. And he, he said, Rob, it's the best thing in the world. I'm hanging out with 20 year olds, <laughs> playing guitar virtually and just joking and in totally different perspectives on the world than all the serious neuroscientists he, you know, comes into. And so I, I think that's really important, right? Because yeah. When I would do these interviews and I would hear the people that, you know, especially the very advanced ones in their career, and they would be recounting stories to me that to me sounded horrible. I mean, conventionally, they were successful, right? They were crushing it in terms of financial success and where they rose in, in different organizations. But then they'd be telling me stories where physically they were unhealthy. They were on their second or third marriage, their children, they didn't talk to that much, and they just didn't have anything else but work. Right. And and I would listen to the stories. And I, of course, I'm not saying this, <laughs> but I'm thinking, oh, my Lord, you know, that, and, and the, the craziest thing is most of them would end the story saying it's been hard, but I would do it again. Right. right. And and I think, you know, a part of that can be a defense mechanism because, you know, right. you've, you've done it one way. You've got to do that. But I, I honestly think another really big piece of it is cognitive and just that they had no idea what could be if they had those two or three groups, you know what I mean? If they stepped out and kind of invested in, in creating dimensionality in who they were. Um, so to me, that's, that's one of the important pieces because we can attune to ourselves a lot, but we need to also understand what's possible by taking some risks and stepping into these groups and kind of discovering, you know, a little bit of, of what we like too. Before we come to a close, I'd like to come back to, uh, the very uh, successful, desirable, and attractive Scott that we talked about at the beginning of the show. And <laughs> very well named. Yeah. yeah. What happened to him? So he, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. You know, one of the things they did with him is they took him um, and out to a, a health retreat camp. So he, they did a bunch of things. So one very easy thing everybody can do is look back in your calendar four months your calendar and select email. And what you're looking for are not the big things that are crushing you, but the accumulation of the small, right? So our minds don't work that way. We can't remember all the small things that accrue around us like molasses and we just keep reacting in the moment. So he was sitting down with a coach and he, he happened to be using email and calendar and it's a device to remind him, right? And help him see where this was happening. And, and then just saying, okay, you know, these interactions I don't need to attend to. I can move these informational requests to people that are two layers out in the network. Um, he was doing things like that that took the burden off of him, but at the same time pulled talent that he wanted better connected into the network, right? So it was a really effective structural approach to um, kind of uh, uh, fixing the overload. But then they did something else that, that I had no idea was possible. They sent him to a, a health camp. 
for 10 days, right? And so physically, as I was describing, he was worn out. Um, but I believe it was a yoga retreat. I can't remember. It was 10 days that he had to be away. And when he went in the door, he said the hardest part was not going to the, the retreat, but that they took away his devices. And I, and I mean that plural. He had two things. He was on constantly. And so he tells the story in this organization and the leadership program we do together. And he said the first day was like a heroin withdrawal, right? His hands are shaking. And, and we know that's not too far off the truth in terms of how dopamine works, you know, for us in terms of these, these responses. Um, but he said he uh, you know, get, got through the week and got through the 10 days, came back rested, recharged and everything. And of course, the very first thing he did on day 11 was back on email, right? Because he wanted to get caught up and see everything. And for him, you know, what the biggest epiphany he had is he would start going down these emails uh, from 10 days ago and feel one of these, see one of these group emails that he would feel a need to react to. And this is 10 days ago. And he would say, I felt I could feel my blood pressure rising my face flushing. I could feel I had to get in and then see that the problem was solved fine two emails after he would have jumped in. Right. And it mm-hmm. just was a very poignant way to see the degree to which he was creating that problem in a way that he had never intentioned before. And again, this wasn't a control freak, right? This is all coming from a good place. Um, but it was killing him uh, over mm-hmm. time. So he ended up moving from the number one overloaded person in the group to number 17 in six months, then to 23 by the end of the year. And, and the idea was, of course, not to get him out of all the interactions, but to position his involvement, right, in a way that, that he had value. Uh, and ultimately, it had a, it won't go into this in too much detail, but a really positive effect on his marriage, too, right, kind of reengaging in that uh, in different ways there. Well, that, that's a nice uh, place to kind of start landing our show, because we always want Scott to be good. Uh, <laughs> um, this has been absolutely amazing um, in terms of, provoking some real deep thoughts about the kind of things that we see every day happening in organizations. Can we just kind of fast forward everything that you've learned um, and are learning about you know, this problem and the ways in which certain people are kind of navigating through? Can we start thinking about, and I, I, I don't like the idea of prediction, but you know, in 10 years' time, what could an organization look like that embraces more of this understanding? How would it look, do you think, in the future? It's a great question, right? I, I think, you know, one of the fascinating things, we've talked about a lot of the downsides of this, but for the people that do it well, I mean, they're experiencing tremendous career benefits and they're scoring highest on measures of thriving, you know, career satisfaction. So they're doing it well and, and enjoying their lives, you know, and not feeling the burnout that probably 90% of us uh, feel. And so I'm hopeful that we learn how to help people do that and help replicate some of these ideas. Um, because at the heart of it is human beings, we have never had the ability to shape what we do and who we do it with more than today. But we give it up too much. You know, we fall into these kind of reactive postures. So I'm hoping we start to see, you know, organizations that aren't just trying to keep people because they're worried about 2022 resignations and just throw a lot of flexibility or money at them but are actually kind of helping them understand in this interconnected world how they can join that organization and, and leave a better person, right? Having done some of these things well, either growth-wise or, or well-being-wise. Um, I think that's, that's, and that's a very different skill set, quite frankly, as a college professor. We don't teach that well <laughs> right now. You know, we teach people to, to be pithy in the moment, smart and elegant, and all these things aren't necessarily what creates, you know, these kinds of relationships. Um, 
I think the second thing is what I was alluding to before is that organizations have got to get better at measuring and understanding the collaborative footprint of the work, or they're just going to continue to overrun people. And so I, I think we see things like Microsoft's workplace analytics, uh, Trustsphere, I could go down a whole bunch of things that are starting to do that. But just like, you know, when we went through the process revolution with Deming and Duran, and they were really looking at work from a process standpoint and thinking about what do we measure? How do we pay attention to it? I feel like we're in the same kind of transition now. And until we get that piece of it done well, leaders are going to continue to be shooting blindly and, and overwhelm people in places that, uh, that will have to shift at some point. Rob, I think we're going to bring it to a close here because I know we're, we're out of time. But I have to say that was an mm. incredibly stimulating and enjoyable hour that we yes. spent with you thank you so much hope i didn't ramble on too much no, there a not at all no it was perfect thank you rob all right folks before you do anything else today be sure to order your copy of beyond collaboration overload on amazon and until next time remember the world is evolving are you 